my hope for Bitcoin is that by demonetizing all these other things, it will make housing cheaper. It will make food and clothing cheaper, and we'll have higher quality everything as again technology and new techniques continue to drive down the cost of production of those things everything else becomes abundant so I, I cannot look forward enough to the uh, future age of abundance that Bitcoin will usher in once everybody has adopted it as a monetary base hey everybody welcome back to the Blockware intelligence podcast this week I have on Jimbo coin Jimbo coin uh, from Twitter Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, excited to have you. Um, you have a lot of very great thoughts on Twitter. You've also written a book about Bitcoin, and I want to dive into a bunch of different topics this podcast. Um, first, I want to start out with this idea of the super cycle that you've mentioned before. What is it? Why do you talk about it? And, and what interests you about it? <laughs> thanks, thanks for teeing that up. So... Um... So the, the super cycle concept uh, came out of this idea that I had um, almost four years ago now in, in early 2019. And the, the problem is with Bitcoin price is that at the current time, a single unit of Bitcoin, you know, in the 100 million Satoshi cents is too large, right? It's whatever, $16,000, $18,000 is a lot for people to think about in terms of uh, crazy internet money. But meanwhile, the smallest unit of Bitcoin, a Satoshi, is too small to think about. It's like 0. 0.0016 cents or 1.8 cents, whatever. So it's too small. It takes 5,000 of them to make a dollar. So we're in this weird we're in this weird chasm. And so that drives people into shitcoinery because they're like, oh, well, I can get several whole ethers or I can get, I can get tens of whole Litecoins or whatever they are. Or look, Doge is like 40 cents or whatever it is, right? So drives people into these other things because they don't necessarily understand that you can get small, small fractions. So it occurred to me that at a million dollars per Bitcoin, a Satoshi is one cent. And at that price, it no longer makes sense to price Bitcoin in in hundred million uh, Satoshi chunks. It makes more sense to say, no, we're just going to call a Bitcoin this one thing. And so the whole notion of the super cycle was me trying to plan out, okay, so what are the psychological milestones between here and that? Because once we get to penny sat, once we get to cent Satoshi, uh, what I think is going to happen is we're just going to keep the BTC ticker, but it'll be like a one-time 100 million to one split. So we'll just move the decimal place eight points, and now it's suddenly, now it's a penny stock. And so at that moment in time, you have everyone's interests aligned. You have the hard money advocates, you know, the, the, the hardcore Bitcoiners, they're still into Bitcoin. You have the, uh, the gamblers who are just getting into it for the first time. It's like, oh, yeah, I can get all these Satoshis for a penny, right? And you've also destroyed a whole bunch of shitcoins because now, now their price is comparable to Bitcoin again and instead of being more or less. So um, so that's the gist of it. I had thought that that might occur in 2021 because uh, for, from my perspective, I felt like we needed to get to $300,000 per Bitcoin because at 300K, people start to think like, could this go to a million? And then that becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then once we get to a million, we do this flip. So, uh, but unfortunately, 2021 got cut short. We didn't ever even made it to 100,000. I thought we were gonna overshoot that and then crash back down to 80K and be at 80K now. Um, so I was wrong about the timing, and I think that just has to do with the fact that um, it takes everybody some time to get into Bitcoin, and I thought enough time had passed, quite frankly, by like 2021, uh, but apparently not. Apparently it's going to take some more time. 
That's it. Yeah. Sorry, I've, I've already talked too much. No, no, that was great. Fantastic. Um, I think you made some great points. The It's interesting how a lot of people don't even, in my opinion, really know that there are things called SATs. And in fact, like when you look at the source code of Bitcoin, which I'm sure you probably have at some point, that's actually the native unit of Bitcoin is SAT. Like Bitcoin is kind of a made up concept that aggregates those SATs because when Bitcoin first started, like that was just such a small, small, small increment of value that they had to, hey, let's just combine a, you know, a hundred million of these things and call it one Bitcoin. So it's interesting that like we're kind of, if we do go back to the idea that, hey, SATs is, is kind of, or, or small Bitcoins is like the default unit of account, like that's actually been the default forever. It's just actually using that in, 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 in terms of like nomenclature around like the Bitcoin culture, which is very interesting. Um, you also talked about the idea of like gambling, right? Where it's like, okay, altcoins kind of feed the market, uh, the demand for, for gambling or trying to like get rich quick and, and Bitcoin would kind of solve this because Bitcoin is number go up technology, right? That's the point of Bitcoin. It's this superior monetary technology. And if Bitcoins are one cent and then people might be like, oh, this could go to 10 cents or, or, or whatever. And it becomes a lot easier to comprehend for everybody. I'm curious. I want you to kind of dive deeper on the idea that, um, you know, Bitcoin never really did hit 100K. Do you have, we didn't see the super cycle. You, you mentioned that is that adoption just simply wasn't there yet and, and knowledge wasn't there. Do you have any more ideas or, or can you expand on that as to why we ne didn't necessarily hit 100K? Yeah, so if if we're if we're taking the uh, if we're taking the retrospective view on the last couple of years, particularly 2021, um, I was not expecting NFTs and DeFi. Like NFTs and DeFi to me looked a whole lot like the ICOs of like 2018, 2019, which had all been flushed and people had like seen through those scams. So then when NFTs came along, and also you know. Um, Bitcoin has had NFTs, right? The, uh, the the rare Pepe's from like back in the day. So it's not even new. It's like we it's, we've already had that. Uh, so I did not see those things coming as being another wave of speculative mania. Um, but yet, but yet it happened. So I think some of that uh, some of that energy of like new folks coming into the space might have been, hey, let's you know buy these monkey JPEGs, uh, and I think that might have absorbed some of the the energy. Um, another thing that is a, a little difficult is um, Bitcoin competes in the meme space. It, it competes in the space of ideas, right, that people have to think about. And a lot is going on right now in the world that is not Bitcoin. There's a lot of, like, political stuff, and there's a lot of, um, you know, discussion of free speech. And, just, you know, at this time back in 2021, there was, like, the Canadian truckers rally. There's just a lot going on in the world and so bitcoin has to compete with all of that i think if we were in more normal times bitcoin would probably have an easier job gaining mindshare um than in these crazy times where people have a lot of other stuff to think about yeah those are fantastic points i'm curious what do you think will be the catalyst for this idea of the bitcoin super cycle like we do I get the point where, okay, once Bitcoin gets close to a million dollars, we might reprice Bitcoin in sats. But how do we get to, to that point? Like, are halvings going to play a role? Is the macro situation going to have to reverse? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great, 
Great question. So um, what we're doing right now is trying to predict the future, which is, you know, the hardest thing to predict. And uh, I was famously wrong about thinking that we would already be well beyond where we are now. So uh, having caveated all of that, like what's going, what's going to happen going forward? So again, to, to, to bring it back to the meme space idea, like Bitcoin can, competes in this meme space. And part of that meme is the, the halving cycle, which uh, magically coincides more or less with the... Uh, United States presidential election cycle. So there's a presidential election in 2024, so the American consciousness will be completely absorbed with that mess uh, beginning at the beginning of 2024 and probably before that. Um, whether or not Trump even runs, he will make noise about it, which will drive the media frenzy and that will consume more attention. So I, I don't perceive that between now and election 2024 presidential election for the American consciousness I think there's too much competition like there's too much mimetic competition from the presidential election to get people really excited about a new monetary standard that would be my guess also we had all this um, fiscal tightening from the Fed everyone's watching the Fed like what are they going to do next at some point they will ease but they probably won't do that until people are already uh, depressed like people have to be so depressed that when they ease it won't make a difference that's when they'll do it so that probably might occur in the next you know year or two um so what's the catalyst so it it takes everybody everybody goes through stages with bitcoin you hear about it for the first time and you're like wow that sounds like a scam and then time passes and you're and then you hear about it again and you're like oh wait that scam that scam didn't die like what what is that that's weird then you feel like you're late, like, oh, well, it's too late now anyway because it's already whatever thousands of dollars. I can't afford that. Like, I got to I gotta try to make up for lost time. I got to trade these alts. I got to, like, maybe I can bet my house on this monkey JPEG, right? So people go through that phase. Then you get wrecked. Then time passes. Then you hear about Bitcoin again. And now now this time it's like, okay, this the scam is still here. But somehow all this other stuff disappeared. But this original thing I heard about the first time is still around. Then you have the opportunity to go and like fall down the rabbit hole. I'm no different than anybody else in the sense that I went through all those same phases. I just I just finished the last one of those in 2017. So in 2017 I was like all in. I was like, okay, I get it. Now everything else is a scam. Uh, I think a lot of other people were maybe just entering the the funnel in 2017, and in 2021 they were getting wrecked on the the JPEGs. So maybe it'll take another, I don't know, maybe 2025, 26 would be the time frame that enough people are ready that that they can, you know, make, make the crossover. One other thing I'd like to add about the tipping point, I know, I'm, I know I've already talked too much and I should, I should yield the floor, but I just want to say one other thing about the tipping point. Currently today, most people know zero Bitcoiners, right? If you just random, random sample, like pick a random person, how many Bitcoiners do you know? It's probably zero. People who know any Bitcoiners probably know one. It's just that one weirdo that they happen to know, right? Now, Bitcoiners know a lot of each other, right? So there's a lot of, like, people who know. who know. But but for anybody who knows any, they, they know one, and almost nobody knows even one. When you know one person who's into something, you can ignore it. You can be like, well, that's just that one weirdo. Like, whatever they're into, I don't care. When you know two people that are into something you're not into, that's a signal. That's like, okay, I should at least understand what this thing is that I'm ignoring, Right, and most people haven't made it to that level yet. So part of the part of the tipping point, and part of the reason that it's gradually then suddenly, is because right now almost nobody knows anybody who's into Bitcoin. Once they know two people, they'll be like, "Now I'm afraid that I'm late. I had better learn about this right now." 
So I had thought, again, I had thought that all of that would happen in 2021 because I, I was thinking from the Mt. Gox perspective. I was thinking that everybody had heard about Bitcoin in 2014 when Mt. Gox collapsed, that 2017 with the ICOs was when they were going through their shitcoining phase, and that that had all been flushed out by 2021. I was wrong. A lot of people were just hearing about it for the first time in 2017. And there's probably another wave of people that are just hearing about it in 2021 who are not going to be ready to fall down the rabbit hole. So anyway, I'll yield the floor. No, yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, great summary of, of, of those ideas. And yeah, it's interesting. I personally don't remember hearing about Bitcoin until 2017. And I didn't like fully grasp it until the bear market of, of 2018. But yeah, no, it is. Sometimes I do think like, oh, this is taking a while. But in hindsight, if you really look back at how fast Bitcoin adoption has gone from zero to hundreds of billions of dollars, it is somewhat impressive considering like there's no company or, or marketing department uh, behind it. So it is interesting there. But yeah, you made some some fantastic points. You have like a, a unique view on on Bitcoin ownership and like how Bitcoin ownership is is knowledge. Can you expand on, on that idea? Yeah. So a lot of people, um, you know, okay, so I, I'm going to assume that your audience knows that in Bitcoin, when you own some Bitcoin, what you really have is the ability to unlock coin that has been sent to you. So somebody had sent it to your address, which is really a locking, it's like the, the ticket stub that says that you have the ability to unlock this coin, right? Um, whether you can move the coin comes down to whether or not you have the keys, right? Your keys, your coins. People understand this. And a lot of times those keys are derived from a seed phrase that you write down. There's like these 12 words that you write down. And that that is your ownership. And as long as that randomness was good, that's yours and nobody else can move it. Some people take the extra step then of encoding that written those written words into, say, metal, right? They, they're like, I'm going to make sure that this is impervious to destruction. I'm going to engrave it in metal. I'm going to carve it in stone. When you do that, you've taken the knowledge of the keys because ownership is the knowledge of the keys and you've encoded it into the world you've put that you've put that knowledge into into physical media but it hasn't changed the nature of of the bitcoin ownership it's still the fact that in bitcoin knowledge is ownership so if you if you know the keys you own it if you don't know the keys you can't move it and that's it there's no other authority to to go to in the physical world and meat space ownership is what you can defend right and how you defend something depends very much on like what your scenario is if you build a cabin out in the woods you're defending it against the forces of nature right the the storm that's going to want to wash away the the foundation the the animals that are going to want to try to break in you have to like defend against that entropy um but in bitcoin you don't have to fight against that you just have to know things right you you know it so um yeah, that's that's the gist of it, is that ownership is knowledge, and you can keep some of that knowledge in your head, and because you can keep some of that knowledge in your head, you don't have to encode it in the physical world. You can keep some of it in your head. Bitcoin is the first thing, the first transferable, rival, excludable digital goods, the first thing that humans have ever had that you can take with you to the grave. Before Bitcoin, and even if, so like, look, take, take a gold coin. You have a gold coin. Somebody says your money or your life. They can mean it. If they kill you, they can get the gold coin. If you kill the farmer, you get the farm. But if you kill somebody and they had Bitcoin, you don't get the Bitcoin. In fact, it, you're now less likely to get the Bitcoin by killing them than you were when they were alive. When they were alive, at least there was a chance they might give it to you. But now that they're dead, if they kept that knowledge in their head, it's gone. This 
completely changes the dynamics of human interaction that have been in place since the agricultural revolution. Prior to agriculture, when humans were hunter-gatherers, if you didn't like your neighbors or they were threatening you, you could get up and leave. Just like pack up the tent and go, right? Like there wasn't a whole lot of lording over people because everything that you owned would either spoil or it was enough that you could carry with you to go somewhere else. But with the advent of agriculture, you can't get up and take your farm with you. The farm is still there. You have to defend it. And so people created larger and larger defensive coalitions to defend against, you know, invaders. And that uh, has been the mode of wealth acquisition for the planet for the last, you know, few thousands of years. So this is really a fundamental shift in the way that ownership can occur because now you can have something that's only in your mind. And if somebody goes after you, they're just less likely to have it than they were before. And, and uh, I, I don't think people are ready for that change. It's going to be it's going to be a big one. Yeah, it's truly fascinating. It it kind of is a revolution around property rights and, and property ownership. Um, and in addition to just being you know a superior monetary asset, which is truly fascinating. I've been thinking about this a similar concept for a little bit recently too. To whereas you have traditional assets that you might. You know, you might own U.S. equities, you might own bonds, you might own real estate. Effectively, all of those assets are protected or your transaction to uh, acquire those assets are protected only by like a legal system, which is somewhat your, like your right to defend those assets. Whereas Bitcoin, you know, yes, like if, if Michael Saylor, you know, says to Elon Musk, I want to buy a billion dollars worth of Teslas, he's still somewhat and he enters into a legal contract with him. That's still, you know, protected by the legal system that Michael Saylor needs to give Elon a billion dollars worth of uh, Bitcoin for a bunch of Teslas. But that transaction is also protected by digital, like walls of energy that that miners are are, are creating and, and embedding that transaction into the blockchain. So it's like one of the only assets to where it's not just protected by the legal system, but it's protected by you know actual digitally verifiable walls of energy. Would you agree with that or would you disagree or or what are your thoughts on that idea? Yeah, absolutely. The 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 key feature there uh in in transferring bitcoin is that that transaction once once embedded in the blockchain, once it's been mined into blocks, once it's been confirmed, once your transaction is confirmed, um it's very difficult to reverse. And when I say very difficult, I mean like in, in, Effectively impossible. Like it would, it would be more more in your interest if you if you commanded the resources to reverse a transaction. You're probably better off just mining for Bitcoin, right? You're you're better off just working for the network than trying to undermine it, um, at 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 reasonable scale, right? There is a scale at which maybe if you're moving a billion dollars, where it does make sense to let the let the block, uh, let it get six blocks deep and then run enough <laughs> miners to try to to try to reverse it. But of course, then your counterparty can always just require more confirmations, right? All they have to do is say, yeah, I'm just going to wait for 100 confs. And, and at some point, it will be too expensive to, to reverse. So the, the, the benefit of this wall of energy is that it makes transactions very difficult to reverse. In other realms of life, it's not like that. I mean, if if, uh, if you think you own your house, but then, um, you know, the, then the town comes by and says, hey, we need to build a road here. Right, you might suddenly find that your ownership of that road is not nearly as clear cut as you thought it was. Um, but yeah, uh, in in terms of other things, or you mentioned you mentioned stocks and bonds. Um, you know, what is the bond? The bond is a, a a debt contract. Someone has agreed to pay you some uh, coupon in terms of debt in some unit. 
Um, if it's a government bond, then it's it's, it's kind of weird because they control the amount of the units that they're paying you back and they could just make them out of nothing. If it's not a government thing, it's still a debt contract and you're relying on the uh, solvency and the upstandingness, so to speak, of the of the debtor. Are they, they going to pay it off? Um, stocks are similar in the sense that it's a, it's a contract and uh, that more can be issued with or without your consent and whether or not they whether or not the company follows through right you have this ownership stake in the in the in the, the company nominally will they honor it like if you show up to a meeting and vote are they are they going to actually accept your vote you hope they do i mean we have this regulatory apparatus that is supposed to ensure that they will but will they actually who knows so oh and then real estate real estate's a good example um Oh, we already talked about that. Yeah, because uh, they could come and want your road, or, or um, you know, you have to pay property taxes, and if you if you don't, then they'll they'll take your land away from you. So, but Bitcoin you can own, and that this is also every day that Bitcoin is not millions of dollars is a shock to me because it's like there's one thing in this Earth, this planet, this solar system. There's one thing, the ownership of which is not questionable. Like if you know it, it's yours. And yet people are like diversifying. They're like, oh, yeah, I'll put some in real estate. I'll put some in stocks. I'll put some in I'll put some all, all these other things. It's like they're just trying to protect the value that they have. It's like, well, there's a superior form of value that is only whether or not you happen to be good at creating and keeping secrets. Because that's what entropy is. Your seed, it's entropy. It's a secret, right? Can you make a secret and keep it? If you can make a keep a secret, you can own Bitcoin. And it's by far superior in terms of your ownership claim to everything else that we know of. Absolutely. Great points. On this topic of, of self-custody and, and creating your own seed and holding the private keys to your Bitcoin, I think it's something that's honestly fairly easy, but it's not very familiar to people. So I kind of think of like an example is like when email first came out, people were like, what, how do you use email? But now that it's familiar to everybody, it's pretty straightforward. How are you thinking about Bitcoin self-custody and how you know normal people may be able to adopt to it over time? Uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I think if you're talking about how can people get exposed um, and and how can they how can they learn about self-custody, I think it helps to use analogies uh, based on what they already know. Um, so some people already know about checks. Some people don't yet. You know, maybe they're too young to have to have experienced a checkbook. But for people who do understand a checkbook, you can make you can equate uh, a Bitcoin transaction to a check and say, like, when you write a check, what makes the check valid? Like, what makes it a valid check versus a fraudulent check? And what makes it valid is your signature. Did you sign it? It doesn't matter what pen you used, like what color ink you used. Like, did you sign it or not? People can fake that, right? But that's nominally, like in spirit, that's what makes it a valid check is that you signed it. And if you sign it without filling in all the fields, like it's a blank check, it's still valid, right? It's just like the signature part is the part that matters. So if you if you begin with that for people who are um, familiar with that uh, that technology of the check, then you can say in Bitcoin, it's exactly the same as a check. It's just a digital signature that is impossible to forge. And, and and it's but it's roughly the same. Like you are making a transaction, which is like a check. It has inputs. It came from somewhere. It came from your account. Bitcoin doesn't use an account model, but for the purposes of educating someone, you can you can kind of float it a little bit that way. And you're writing it to somebody. They've given you an address to write it to. It's going to them, and you sign it, and that's it. Like and it's very similar. So 
that model works. You mentioned email. Email is another good model that helps people understand if people are familiar with email but less familiar with checks. You can explain it in terms of like when you go to send Bitcoin, you're, it's like you're writing an email. Who you write it to, they'll tell you. They'll tell you write it to this account and you're writing an email. And then once you broadcast it, it gets confirmed into a block. And that's kind of like when you write an email and you send it off to your email provider, they will make sure that it gets sent to whoever it's going to. So you can you can make these analogies to, to help people understand. Yeah, definitely. I think that's very interesting. And yeah, to me also, like there's some technologies that exist today that if they were invented, you know, today instead of 50 years ago, uh, they would be perceived as like infeasible or very confusing. And I think like the check to some extent is kind of one of those examples where it's like, okay, you got to go set up a bank account. You got to get an account number. You got to get a routing number on the check. You, you see those two numbers. You got to sign it. You got to write out, you got to spell out exactly how much money you're, you're sending. Then you got to write how much money you're sending. And then there's more things on the check. So it's like, oh, someone could be like, oh, this UX is horrible. You know, how is anyone ever going to open a bank account and use this to transact? Whereas Bitcoin, in comparison, you know, you have, you simply plug in a hardware wallet, you write down the 12 words on the device, and then you click receive, and then you can send, you, you get the address, send it to somebody, they send you Bitcoin. If you want to send Bitcoin, you just plug in your hardware wallet, type in the address you want to send it to, click send, click sign on your hardware wallet, and then you're done. So arguably, you know, this could be easier than many of the existing payment technologies that exist or even savings technologies that exist, but it's just not familiar with people. Um, yeah, people def yeah, people definitely don't yet really have a, a good mental model for these things. And there were a lot of steps in your description there that I think um, over time the, the UX has gotten better. Um, but it takes everybody a while to, to understand. So you mentioned a hardware wallet, right? So you have your signing device, and its job is to house the, the secret material, right? As we said earlier, your ownership of Bitcoin is knowledge. Do you know that? Did you make the secret, and do you know the secret? Can you keep a secret? That's what this device does, the signing device, the hardware wallet. Its job is to keep secret that information and make sure that it doesn't get out. Separate from that, you have, um, because again, Bitcoin uses a transaction model, not an account model in order to lump together all of the transactions that you've received to give you an account view of like your total, like the total amount of Bitcoin that you have, you really have to add up all the amounts and all the transactions. That's what your wallet software does. Your wallet software says, here are all the transactions that belong to me and here are all the ones, you know, here's the total amount, um, here's the total amount over time, you know, it can give you different views of those things. But your wallet doesn't need to know about the secret sauce. It doesn't need to be able to do the signing. It just needs to be able to tell which transactions belong to you so that it can give you you know here's all the things you've you've done and then separate from the the software separate from the wallet software is your node your node is how you interact with the rest of the the network right and then separate from the node is the the specialized mining nodes that are out there like making blocks so you have this increasing diversity of devices. So you might have your software wallet running on your phone or on your computer. You have a signing device that's a specialized hardware device. Uh, you have your node, which is oftentimes now there are things like MyNode or Umbral. Umbral people use Raspberry Pis for that. You can also run it on a laptop. right? So you have your node, and then you have your obviously specialized ASIC hardware, um, mining hardware. So there's this increasing diversification and specialization within the hardware of the Bitcoin space. And um, 
it's going to take a little while for all of that to play out, for people to understand, like, which parts do I need? <laughs> What's the minimum I can get away with? What are they for? And, you know, it, it, it is not the best UX right now um, in terms of all of that complexity. Uh, it will get simpler. And to your point earlier about email, people will become more familiar with it. So over time, it'll become more familiar with people. But, yeah, you just got to get out there and try it. Get a wallet. Try it out. Get a little bit of Bitcoin. Don't be afraid if you lose it because, like, start with a start with a small amount that start with a few dollars worth, you know, to you, so that if you lose it, you're not that upset about it. Um, get comfortable with it because you can always make more wallets later, you know, just as you get better at it. Yeah, definitely. I think an interesting analogy too around running a full node to set the consensus rules of the network for yourself, and then also to validate your incoming transactions. I, could, I kind of think of that as, as similar to like having an internet router, right? Like most people don't really understand how an internet router works, but we all have one in our house that allows us to connect to the internet. And so it's like things are going to get simpler over time. And I think running a Bitcoin full node might eventually become part of like your internet router if that's like how it works. And then maybe the software will just be like a certain URL on your, your browser that's automatically connected to like your home network and then that's your wallet software, and then you have your hardware wallet, and then you're pretty much set, set right there. But yeah, there are a lot of different moving pieces, and I don't necessarily think, you know, in the future, normal people are going to have to know the inner workings of all of these, even though now it's, it's like if you really want to understand Bitcoin, you kind of do kind of need to dive deep into each of those segments of Bitcoin. Uh, but yeah, I think over time, like you said, it's going to get so much easier. Um, you talk a lot about this idea of consensualism and you talk about how it's kind of this wealth maximizing philosophy um, that, that, you know, society is, is kind of like converging on potentially. What is this? Why is it important? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, on Twitter, I, my name is Jimbo the Consensualist. Uh, I mean, Jimbo Coin is my handle, but Jimbo the Consensualist is um, the, the name that I chose. And my rationale there is uh, I was trying to rebrand anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho-capitalism, I've read a lot of, I've read my fair share of Rothbard. Um, anarcho-capitalism is, in my opinion, uh, a wealth-maximizing philosophy. It's like the correct thing. It's the it's the most humane philosophy. It makes the most sense. Uh, the problem with anarcho-capitalism is the name. So unfortunately, um, if you say the word anarchy to most people, they'll think chaos. And however hard you argue that anarchy is really just the lack of government, they'll be like, well, no, that's chaos. Um, similarly with capitalism, uh, capitalism is great. It's responsible for all the wonderful things we have. And yet, for a number of people, they hear capitalism, it's like, oh, that's exploitation. So when you hear anarcho-capitalism, it sounds like chaotic exploitation to some people. And that's a really difficult place to start from if you're trying to persuade people to adopt a particular philosophy. Now, an anarcho-capitalist would say, no, 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 it's completely the opposite. It's not chaotic and it's not exploitive. We don't want any of those things. Like, but but you're already at a you're already at a disadvantage argumentatively. So, my my objective with um, rebranding anarcho-capitalism as consensualism was to try to come up with something that would be impossible to argue against, particularly for collectivists and particularly for collectivists on the left side of the political spectrum. So my goal with consensualism is basically to rebrand anarcho-capitalism and just shift the focus a little bit. So whereas anarcho-capitalism, or maybe a term like voluntarism, puts the individual in the center, that appeals to people with an individualistic mentality. For people who are individualistic by nature, 
voluntarism sounds great, like it sounds wonderful. For people who are more collectivist in their in their thinking, you know, you hear about uh, voluntarism, 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 and it sounds like, oh yeah, but what if they don't want to volunteer? Stuff needs to get done anyway, right? Like it sounds it sounds very individualistic, which it is, um, which is contrary to a collectivist, which they won't like. But the same people who tend to be collectivists in that way are also very uh, against calling things non-consensual. And the, the connotation there of, of like you know consensual sex is intentional. Because if you're arguing against consensualism, you have to say, when is it okay to do something against somebody's consent? Like, when is it okay to do something to somebody without their consent? And it's like, immediately that puts them on the defensive. They're like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, that's, that's a really tough question. Like, things should be consensual. Like, yes, exactly, they should be. So it's really just a reframing. So... Um, and it, and it moves the uh, it moves the center of um, the center of discussion from either the individual or the collective to the bilateral relationship between people. Nobody is an island, right? If I mean, if you're a hermit out in the you know forests outside of you know Bangladesh, okay, fine. Like then the, you're an individual, but you also don't matter from a philosophical standpoint because you're out there in the woods by yourself. Um, and the group, you know, groups are made up of people making individual decisions. So, so consensualism just moves the moves the relationship to the bilateral relationship. A marriage has properties that don't belong to either spouse. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's its own thing. So, um, that's it in a nutshell. I'm hoping to just get more people to the consensualist philosophy because I think it's impossible to argue against. But it's the same thing that we've all we all already agree to in terms of like anarcho-capitalism. Yeah. That's like a very interesting perspective. I haven't, I don't think I've heard you uh, talk about that on a podcast before. And I think it makes a lot of sense. It's to me, it's something kind of like Bitcoin where I believe that both the left and the right could potentially unite behind and, and become more of like the same group rather than completely disagreeing with each other on, on specific topics. Cause I think like Bitcoin specifically Going back to this idea of, of consensualism, I, I feel like, hey, this is this monetary technology that no single person can debase from you. No one can confiscate it from you. And it's just the best monetary technology humans have, have ever discovered. And because of that, we, it's, it's also referred to as, you know, NGU technology or number go up technology to where if there are innovations in the world and the market is competing to lower prices, then those lower prices get reflected in a higher quote-unquote Bitcoin price. And so effectively, when we're all kind of working together in a voluntary manner, Bitcoin, it benefits everybody because we're all holding Bitcoin. I don't know if you have additional ideas on, on that idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned you know, these other things and, and driving costs down. Everything else they can make more of except for time and Bitcoin, right? Your attention is finite. You have to guard it jealously. And your Bitcoin is, you know, the, the, the amount is fixed. But everything else they can make more of. People will say like, oh, yeah, land is valuable. It's like, no, land is everywhere. Drive in any direction, right? There's land, right? Um, there's tons of land down underground that we haven't exploited. There's plenty of sky we could build upwards, right? Land is the, the most abundant thing on Earth, second to water, right? Which is 70% of the, the, the surface. So, um the cool thing about Bitcoin and the fact that it's a the hardest money ever conceived is that it demonetizes everything else. So the problem with monetizing things is that when you monetize something, it becomes valuable just to hold, even though uh, nominally you wouldn't want to have it. That's what money does. Money is the thing you 
Money is the ultimate speculative vehicle. It's the thing you hold because you speculate that no matter what else happens, somebody will take your money. Right? They'll, they'll want your money in exchange for something else. So here in the developed West, we monetize um, certain goods. Right, So houses are largely monetized. Like a good chunk of housing, uh, the value of housing, is its ability to store value. To a lesser degree, vehicles store value. If you have a vehicle, you can expect to sell it later. Um, but if you think about it from a consumption standpoint, your house ought to, in, in, a, in a really super hard monetary sense, your, your, your house should decrease in value because over time, other houses will be built. Those other houses will be built to better standards than yours. They'll be newer than yours. They'll probably be bigger than yours, right? And your house is being lived in while you live in it. It's, it's degrading unless you're like paying, to keep paying for the upkeep, which has its own costs. Same thing with a car. You expect your car to be worth less over time. But the worse your money is, the more likely those things are to actually appreciate in value. So during the beginning of the recent Venezuelan hyperinflation, um, people would be buying trucks and then they'd say like, hey, my used truck is now worth more than I bought it for, like in, in Bolivian, uh, sorry, in, um, in you know, Venezuelan bolivars, whatever. Uh, I must be a genius. It's like, no, you're not a genius. Your money is failing, right? Um, so the worse the money is, the more it monetizes uh, things further down on the consumable list. So what's what's a little bit uh, before? Vehicles might be like home appliances, right? You might see people buying a washing machine as like a way to store wealth if, if, um, if the money's bad enough. And the money's bad enough, you'll buy non-perishable home goods. You'll buy like toilet paper or, or paper towels because it's like at least those I can still use and they're not going to depreciate as fast as the money. So bad money and fiat currencies all over are bad money cause goods that are consumptive goods to be monetized. When you monetize consumptive goods, it makes them artificially scarce, harder to get than they otherwise would be. So the beauty of Bitcoin is by demonetizing all of that other stuff, all that other stuff becomes cheap. So we have water fountains, right? Water, clean, potable water is so cheap that it's given away for free. You can just go to a water fountain and get a drink, right? It's like, or, or it's, you know, it's pumped into your house for like a few cents a gallon. Um, we can talk separately about the quality of that water, but the point is, is that it's available and it's relatively cheap. Other things are less cheap, you know, but they're still necessary for life and you can get them. So my hope for Bitcoin is that by demonetizing all these other things, it will make housing cheaper. It will make food and clothing cheaper and we'll have higher quality everything as Again, technology and new techniques continue to drive down the cost of production of those things. Everything else becomes abundant. So I, I cannot look forward enough to the uh, future age of abundance that Bitcoin will usher in once everybody has adopted it as a monetary base. Yeah, totally agree. And I think it is interesting when you think about today's money, and I'm talking about today's money as in fiat money, how, how bad that money is. And in a way, the system is set up for the money to be bad, right? Like you said that, you know, nominally your, your house or your real estate is going up in value over time, but in real terms, maybe it's not. Um, but in a way, the system is set up to where the only way for normal people to buy a house is to like take out a mortgage, borrow the dollars, then buy the house to where, okay, now you really need the house to go up because if the house starts going down in nominal terms, your mortgage payment starts getting more and more expensive in real terms, and you may default and, and lose your house. And so like the entire world, it's not just real estate, but it's also like private equity firms buying out businesses where they take out massive amounts of leverage to accumulate a company and then hope that the value of the company goes up in five years and they sell it for, for a massive return. So like the kind of, the whole world 
is massively leveraged. In fact, like fiat money itself is debt. So by definition, everything is kind of leveraged. And that requires that real assets continue to go up in price and that the real value of that debt continues to go down so the world can afford to continue paying off the debt, making interest payments, and refinancing to generate more debt. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And, and definitely Bitcoin creates you know a new era where Bitcoin is this sound money where if you maybe create debt claims on top of Bitcoin, we see what happens. Like if, if with FTX, right? FTX, you know, owed one point whatever billion dollars worth of Bitcoin to their clients and they ended up holding zero Bitcoin. So it's definitely difficult to, to run like a fa- fractional reserve type bank- banking scheme uh, with, with, with Bitcoin as the base collateral of the system. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a good point there about about debt based in Bitcoin. Um, the problem with fiat currency being debt, which you mentioned also, is that when a bank buys something, they don't. It's not like they just have the money sitting around and then they give it to the person and buy something. They invent money. They create money, and they write up. You know, okay, I want to buy. You know, your your bank say, and you want to buy a house or a building or something. You say, okay, we'll buy the we'll buy the building from you, and then the person that uh, sells the building, they get an account that now has a balance, and you get the building, and now your 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 book is balanced because you have an asset, the building, and you have a liability. You you the bank have a liability, which is the account that you've marked up for that person's thing, right? But you're but you're you're balanced. So banks create money when they write loans. Loans loan money is money, right? In in the the U.S. like banking system and actually probably worldwide the problem with that is that if the credit of the bank was actually at stake right like suppose suppose if the dollars that you got mat- it mattered like which bank you got them from then you know y- you might be like okay well I, I will accept dollars from this bank but not from this bank or, or something um, in that kind of a world, then, when banks go out of business, their dollars go with them, and they disappear. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world where a dollar is a dollar, right? And, and all of the banks create the dollars, and in exchange for all of the banks having the ability to create these dollars, they're all centrally regulated by the central bank and its its affiliates, you know. Um, so we're all on the hook, effectively, for all of this money that is created without our consent by these banking institutions that are, you know, nominally regulated by the central bank. But then the central bank can make as much money as it wants. So just like when retail banks create money, they create credit money when they buy things, when they when they issue loans, um, the central bank creates money, the Fed creates money when it buys bonds from the market. So Treasury issues bonds, the bonds get bought up by the market nominally, <laughs> and then the Fed comes in, swoops in, and buys the bonds, and now new money now exists into the system. So the state spends into existence new money. Um, and so I would I would like to have political conversations with people, but unfortunately, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what pol- politics anybody has because the state can just make the money that it wants to print to do whatever it wants, right? Do, do you want to have a, a war in Iraq? Do you want to have a war on drugs? No? Too bad. We'll just print the money and, and spend it into existence. So... We really, we really, we society, really need to separate money and state. Once money and state are separate, then we can have discussions about what governance might look like. 
But until and unless and until you know the state can't make money anymore, can't create money from nothing, and then force everybody to use it. That's the other piece is the force. Like you're compelled. Like you must you must pay them taxes in the units that they create, right? As long as that's the case, then um, all other political discussion is is relatively moot. Which is why I just I don't even bother like having those conversations. Yeah, no, that's very interesting points. Um, you also talk a little bit about inheritance planning with Bitcoin, which I think is a very interesting topic, considering, like we talked about before, Bitcoin is effectively knowledge. So how do you inherit knowledge without you know, having a trusted third party, I guess? Um, how do you think about this? Yeah, so great. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I think inheritance planning is a an up-and-coming field of Bitcoin that needs more attention and better UX. I mean, as, as hard as the UX is for just using it yourself, it's even harder for doing inheritance planning in a way that uh, feels safe and like secure. So, but the good news is, is that the Bitcoin protocol has the tools in place for us to have some really great inheritance planning. So as we said earlier, in Bitcoin, ownership is knowledge. Do you know the keys? Then you can move the coins. And if you keep some of that knowledge in your head, if it's not all written down, if it's all written down, it's basically like gold, right? And somebody can just kill you and take your steel plate, and now they have your Bitcoin. But as long as some of that knowledge is in your head, then you can take it with you to the grave, and nothing else has that, like nothing else has that property. When you go to do inheritance planning, now you have a new problem, which is like, people think of it in terms of like, I need to get this seed that I made. I need to get this piece of metal over to my heirs. How do I do that? And how do I make sure that that transfer of that seed happens at the right time and isn't happening at the wrong time? Like, how do I make sure that my heirs can't get it until I'm dead and that they will get it after I'm dead? Like, these are very difficult problems. Having thought about it quite a bit, I've come to the conclusion that there's no substitute for competence. If, if your heirs are not competent to handle their own keys, then they're going to mess it up anyway, no matter how, how well you try to transfer the keys over to them. So I've come to the conclusion that I think for inheritance planning, I don't think you want your heirs to inherit your keys. I think your keys should die with you, and your heirs should have their own keys. So if you want your heirs to inherit, make sure that they have their own wallet, single sig, multi-sig, whatever they're comfortable with, whatever they can do and they can understand and, and handle on their own. They have their own wallet. Okay, so then you mentioned this, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, but I, this uh, dead man's transaction. It's, a, it's an acronym I've been trying to get people to use, DMTX. It's, it's a pretty simple concept. When you write a physical check, there's a, there's a field for the date. You put the, you know, today's date, blah, blah, blah. And the whole point of that is the use, that it's only valid until that date. If you wanted to on a check, you could write next week's date. And then when you give the check to somebody, the bank won't accept it until next week, right? So... Bitcoin transactions have the same concept. There's this field called n lock time, which is the number of blocks. It, it's the, the block height after which that transaction is um, allowed. The reasons for n, n lock time are interesting and have to do with uh, mining in the future, like hundreds, 100 years from now. But um, the point is, is that you can set this n lock time to be in the future. So you could say, take today's block height, add six months worth of blocks, and make a transaction that will not be valid for six months. So from an inheritance standpoint, what you can do is you make your transaction that sends your coins to your heir or heirs, right? You, you set the end lock time to be six or 12 months in the future. You sign the transaction, and then you just email it to them. 
maybe it's encrypted with a password that they know or something, right? But the point is, is that you just give the transaction to them. If anyone tries to broadcast this transaction, it's not valid. It will not be mined into a block because the, the unlock time hasn't arrived yet. Nodes might choose to keep it in their mempools anyway, even though it's not yet valid. I mean, that's up to them whether they want to keep it. But the point is, is that it will not be it will not be in the blockchain yet because it, the unlock time hasn't hasn't um, gotten there yet. So then, suppose you're still alive, or, or you just don't don't like your errors anymore. Like, no, sorry, I'm writing you out of the will, right? Well, then all you do is you just take some of those UTXOs that you were going to bequeath to them, and you make a new transaction that just sends it to a new address of your own. Broadcast that one. Just do a self spend. Uh, on a day where there's like low fees, you know, there's there's not a lot of stuff going on in the blockchain. Um, send send the coins back to yourself to a new address, and now their transaction is void because it would double spend. It would try to spend the UTXOs that you've just moved, right? So the advantages of this system is that as long as your heirs don't lose the transaction, and you know they still have access to their email or whatever, and they have their own keys. They can claim the coins after you die. It's 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 prearranged that that transaction will allow them to inherit the coin. That's that's an advantage. Downside of this is that your heirs know exactly how much coin they're going to get because they can look at the transaction and they can see, well, how much how much do you have? They can kind of guess, right? They can like go back through the through the chain and like see see your other UTXOs. So if you're trying to hide how much coin your heirs are going to inherit, this isn't perfect, um, but it's it's along the right the right path. So I, I think we could have better tooling for that. Currently today, if you use a Sparrow wallet or Electrum, some of these other like full-featured um, software wallets for computers, they will allow you to specify an end lock time. Um, your your off-the-shelf mobile wallet is less likely to have that feature. Um, but yeah, that's 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 my take on um, on inheritance planning. Nice. Yeah, that was a very interesting uh, idea. I've I don't know if I, I've definitely heard of various, you know, ideas for inheritance planning, but I don't know if I've ever heard that one. So, but it makes a lot of sense. You just gotta, I guess, remember to, you know, before the transaction becomes valid, to make sure that you move your UTXOs and make that uh, that future transaction invalid, and it would never work um, if you were worried about your heirs trying to steal from you or something like that, which seems yeah. unreasonable. But, you know, you you can help yourself out in that way too. So like. So let, let's say that you were my heir, and I was going to send you some coin. So I would make a transaction that sends it to you, and I would sign it for six months in the future, and I would email that to you. Now let's say I also want it to be easy to undo that decision. I will make another transaction that sends back to myself and sign it with an end lock time of now, but just don't broadcast it. I'll just save that transaction to, like, you know, a, a, a micro SD card or something, or yeah. just just keep it keep it off to the side. Then on the day that I want to cancel it, I don't have to do anything special. I don't have to go to my locations to get anything signed. It's like I have the signed transaction. I just got to drop it on the blockchain. Nice. I like that. It's interesting. So you can basically sign both transactions at the, on the same day when you do this, and then send one to your heir, keep one for yourself, and that kind of you know fixes the whole hassle. Very interesting. I like that. Yeah, you can um, have the cancel transaction all set up. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I know you have a book. Uh, what's your book? Why should people read it? Um, and, and tell us about it. Sure. So my book is called uh, Orange Coin Good. Um, my motivation for writing this was back in 2017 when I was falling down the rabbit hole, I had some colleagues and I was trying to explain things to them and I found that I was trying to keep them up to date of what was going on in the, in the shitcoin world. And I found that there was just a lot of stuff they didn't know. And I 
there was just more and more stuff I wanted to like bring them up to speed on. So I started writing a book, and it turned out it was going to be about 600 pages, and nobody's going to read a 600-page book. So <laughs> I decided, okay, let's let's break this up and make it into like three, sorry, four 150-page-ish uh, chunks, and that's what Orange Coin Good is. It's the first book that was meant to be a series of four books um, on the value of Bitcoin. So each of the books addresses a question. The first book's question that it's trying to answer is basically, how can this crazy internet money that's not backed by anything have any value at all? Like, how is it that people can have any value in this, right? Because it, people will frequently say, especially gold bugs, they'll say, like, it's not backed by anything. It has no intrinsic value, which we can get into <laughs> how silly of a phrase that is. Um, so that was what I was trying to explain, was how can it have any, any value at all to people? And um, my motivation for writing it also was uh, to try to get to a slightly different audience. So there's already good, if, if you're already libertarian leaning, uh, then the Bitcoin standard is probably going to work for you. Like that's going to appeal to you and you're going you're gonna to jump on board. If you're not libertarian leaning and you're, more of a, you're from more of a collectivist standpoint, uh, that might be less persuasive. And so I was trying to write something that appealed to a more broad cross-section of people than people who were already of the libertarian anarcho-capitalist bent. Um, so in my book, I focus more on the um, more on the principle of reciprocity as a moral tenant. Like we we feel like you know if you get a gift, you kind of feel like you should reciprocate in some way. That feeling of reciprocity is the moral underpinning that I that I use to argue why Bitcoin is good. It's it's reciprocal money, right? If you put work into it, you get the coin, right? If you have some, you can claim later that value from somebody else. That value can't be eroded by a third party. Right, it's it's pure in that sense. So, yeah, I definitely as those were fantastic points. I definitely agree that certain w common narratives for Bitcoin now are are predisposed to certain people that have already a, a certain political mind spec, uh, like idea. Like libertarians typically can gravitate towards Bitcoin fairly easily, but if you're maybe on the far left or even potentially in the far right, you kind of have a harder idea of how to grasp Bitcoin. So I definitely think it's important, like your whole consensualism idea, that people learn about this from a different mindset and it'll still appeal to them, regardless of, of you know, NGU technology, which theoretically appeals to everybody. <laughs> um, if you do have time, I actually would want to dive into a few of those topics. Have you heard of the idea that that, that Pierre Richard has, has talked about before, but he talks about how like holding Bitcoin is like the most charitable act that you can do because effectively what you're doing is you're withholding your purchasing power today and you're effectively anonymously donating to all other Bitcoin holders in the world. Their purchasing power goes up. They can spend more per good and service that's in the world, and you're not even you know necessarily giving money to somebody. Your name's not going on a building or or whatever, but you are charitably giving to everybody else that's a part of this community. Yeah, um, I like I like that way of, of thinking, and it dovetails nicely into um, something else that I that I like to argue. So some, sometimes people will say like, oh, well, what about these early Bitcoiners that have so much coin, right? And I'll say, you know, well, what about them, right? Well, well, they have so much that's unfair, right? Or or, and and my counter my counter to that is like, but what can they do? Right? What can they do with it? Right? So your, to your point, let's say somebody got a whole bunch of Bitcoin in 2011 
and then didn't do anything with it. Well, then so what? It does. It's as though it doesn't exist, right? It's if it doesn't move, it makes no difference. I'm like, well, what if they spend it? Okay, well then they don't have it anymore. Now somebody else has it. So like, like no harm, no foul, right? So I I like I like the point about that. Um, yes, if you if you just hold the coin uh, or die with it, yes, you've donated that value, which is now irrecoverable, and the rest of it is now slightly more valuable as a result. Um, and that's true whether you're just holding it or whether you um, take it permanently offline. Absolutely. And then last question, you talked about the idea of intrinsic value and how that's kind of a strange, nonsensical term. What are your thoughts on, on the term uh, intrinsic value? Yeah. So, so this is one of those cases where there are words in the English language that may have meant something in the past but now mean something quite different. So an example would be the word literally. People will say like, oh yeah, yeah, that was so funny, I literally peed my pants. It's like, no, you didn't actually literally do that. You figuratively did because you thought it was funny, right? But the word, you know, we can argue whether or not literally should mean that or shouldn't mean that, but language is fluid and language changes over time. So intrinsic is one of those words where if you look up in a philosoph uh, philosophy textbook, it might have a particular meaning. But the way people mean it today is they mean, when they say intrinsic, they mean like um, natural, like that it's it's... Uh, original that the the that the, the um, aspect that they're discussing is of the thing itself, not from the perspective of some other person. And so, from that for that reason, I say intrinsic value is an oxymoron because value, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Right? You value something; something has value only because a subject, some some person, subjectively perceives it as valuable. Uh, it's like the classic. Um, glass of water in a desert. If you're in a desert, a glass of water has a lot of value. If you're, you know, already have tons of glasses of water, then an additional unit of water is not as valuable to you, right? It's subjective, right? And if there's no subject around, then the value doesn't exist, right? Does a, does a, if a tree falls in the woods, does anyone, does it make a sound, right? Right? Nobody hears it kind of a thing. Same thing with value, right? Value doesn't exist if there's no person, if there's no, you know, if we're going to be inclusive, no, no thinking entity to, 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 perceive it as having value. So intrinsic value, I think, is a cop-out. You know, um, gold bugs will say, like, oh, gold has intrinsic value because the thing itself, it's like, no, that's an oxymoron. Nothing has intrinsic value. Everything is subjective. Value is always and everywhere subjective, and um, there's nothing intrinsic about it. That would be my take. But some people will argue again. They'll say, like, well, no, no, intrinsic has this meaning from philosophy where, um, you know, you can like something for itself as opposed to a vehicle for getting somewhere else it's like okay okay well that's not how people use it when they're arguing with gold bugs on gold bugs on twitter so anyway yeah no firmly agree with the idea that nothing really has intrinsic value value is by definition in my opinion like subjective to the beholder so great point um we can definitely go ahead and wrap this up i think this is a fantastic conversation i really enjoyed it i think we covered a lot of super interesting topics i'm sure the audience is going to love it uh, where do you want the, to send them after this podcast? Do you have a Twitter, a website, or, or I know you have a book. Anything else? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, find me on Twitter. I'm Jimbo Coin there. Also, Jimbo Coin on Telegram. Um, yeah, I would just say hang out with me on those places. If you're interested in making your own seed material for your own keys, I made a thing called Seed Picker Solitaire, which lets you use a deck of cards to, to yield seed words. Um, so if you're into that kind of thing, I would say look up Seed Picker Solitaire. But yeah, Jimbo Coin on Twitter is the best place to find me. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed this. Thank you.